If you want to grab a seat. Boy, that was the most quiet this ever got so quickly. Good morning. Good to see you here. Welcome again to the uh, group from West Michigan Pillar Church. Good to have you guys with us. If you would take your Bible and open up again to the scripture I read, Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Father, thank you that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and is indeed a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. We thank you for the power of the word that is able to bring forth life, hope, help, conviction, rebuke, encouragement, and I pray it would do that and more, Lord, as we open up um, a highly caffeinated passage this morning. May you give me the help that I need and then some more. I ask in Christ's name, amen. amen. So Rob and Sheila were a young couple that had just come to Christ through the witness of their neighbors. Man, they were so pumped and they were really excited for the upcoming uh, Christmas holidays because their family would meet at his father's in mass every Christmas Eve and they thought, man, this is gonna be a great chance to tell our family about our faith in Christ. And early in the evening, sure enough, a great opportunity came up and they shared with them how they had become Christians and uh, everyone was kind of politely quiet. But as the hours grew on and the drinks grew deeper, what happened is um, things got a little tense. The atmosphere changed. Questions like, are you telling me that you weren't a Christian when you were in the Catholic Church? Um, are you telling me that you weren't born and raised a Christian? And he answered, you know, listen, I'm not trying to start anything. I just know that it's in Jesus Christ alone that we can be saved and you must trust in him. Oh, what you're saying is we're going to hell if we don't believe in Jesus exactly the way you do. I liked you better before you got saved. Rob and Sheila's story. And then there's Janet. Janet was so excited when she met a group of young moms who would meet at a local playground uh, weekly for play dates with all their kids. She started meeting people, they started hanging out uh, in the evenings, families were getting together, it was going really good. But one of those play dates, one of the moms started saying, hey, there's this upcoming women's march and I think it'd be great if we all went. And she remembered being kind of ticked in her spirit about it, but she went home and looked into it and she said, man, there, I'm for women's rights, but there's some stuff that they're encouraging in this, in this march that are anti-God, such as abortion and some other things. And so she prayed about it, and the next time it was brought up at those play dates, she said, hey, I want you to know I'm all for women's rights, but I don't think this women's march is a good thing for some of the things they're doing, such as an, uh, promoting abortion. And she said, that's kind of ironic, because what got, brought us together actually was, you know, playing with our kids. Um, and she used that opportunity to share the gospel. Well, she kind of got the cold shoulder after that. And people started whispering about her, saying she didn't get it. She was old-fashioned. She didn't care about women and all the rest. That's, that's, that's Janet's story. Then you got Rico. Rico showed up for work one Monday, checked in on his company computer, and read an email that said, uh, had a form, and he had to give his preferred pronouns. And he said, oh, boy, not this. And so he just hit the delete button, forgot about it. A week later, his manager came to him and he said, hey, I've noticed you haven't filled out that form. 
And so he graciously, Rico took the opportunity to explain to his boss why he wasn't doing that and, and just gave him the, the biblical framework behind it. And things got really tense. Next month was Pride Month. They had a volunteer uh, seminar and social, which he just decided to work through. And for his absence to this voluntary event, he was told that his values weren't really aligning with the values of the company and that he needed to keep his God stuff off ours. Then there's Erica. Erica was super on fire for the Lord, serving anywhere and everywhere, anywhere she could in the church, leading people to the Lord, discipling uh, tons of people. Um, people were, even got saved through her, through her outreach. But within two years, she went through the sad trifecta of leaving Christ, leaving her church, and leaving her husband. Now, sad stories like this abound. And these are kind of somewhat based on stories that I've somewhat touched on, been in part in my life. And what happens is they often really rattle believers, right? Sometimes strongly so. And I think one of the reasons stories and scenarios like that rattle believers is because we often have wrong expectations about what it means to follow Jesus. And you think about it, almost anything and everything in life, when you go in with wrong expectations, sometimes you end up doubting that thing you committed to, even hitting the eject button outright and quitting it. We'll take marriage. Go into marriage saying, ha, ha, every single one of my needs is gonna be met. My spouse is gonna understand me perfectly without even having to explain myself. It is gonna be pure bliss. And then you get married. And you have these raw expectations and they just sink you. That's why it's important, by the way, in premarital counseling to talk about how marriage is beautiful, but it can also be very painful and exposing. It is, after all, when two sinners say, I do. Or take uh, working out. You say, uh, I want to look good. I want to get fit. And so you maybe buy some workout equipment or you join a gym membership and thinking, you know, a few weeks down the road, I'm gonna be looking better, feeling better. And it doesn't happen that way. It's hard. It's hard. And before you know it, because of those wrong expectations, the new gear is collecting dust in your garage or the membership is going unused, right? Or a job. You, you interview for a job and everyone there seems so cool and you like the vibe. You may, you're thinking, this is gonna be a great place to work. But when you get there, after the honeymoon phase wears off, you find out it's hard <laughs> or sometimes just boring, and there's all the kind of backbiting that happens there as everyone else, everywhere else. Wrong expectations set us up for failure. And the Lord, in our most infinitely important commitment, our commitment to Him, right, and to making Him known, great commission stuff, he does not want us to be sidetracked by having wrong expectations. So last week, Pastor Cleet began to dive into this chapter by talking uh, about what Jesus said about some immediate instructions for mission with application as he uh, did well last Sunday for today. This next, the, the, the rest of the chapter, he, he's giving long range instructions for mission. And so I want to preach to you this morning very simply on mission expectations. 
mission expectations. You saw there's a lot in this chapter, right? So I had to kind of distill it down to two big ideas, two big mission expectations that I think will really help us not to get rattled when we hear about or are a part of some of those difficult scenarios. Amen? So first of all, the Lord wants you to know it is going to be hard. Following him at times is going to be very hard. Seeking to make him known at times is going to be very hard. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be division. There could be persecution, struggle, suffering, and on and on and on. And and honestly, I think this chapter has been functionally deleted from the modern American Bible. I think these verses have been functionally deleted from the modern American Christian mindset. But these are God's words, right? So again, I have no way that I can't preach everything in this chapter, but let me just highlight enough so we get the idea. Jesus saying, hey man, it's gonna be hard, okay? You start off with verse 19. He says, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. When I read that, sorry, here we go again, I couldn't help but think of a fawn and coyotes. A fawn is a deer less than six months old. And sometimes uh, you will come across a fawn that was attacked by a pack of coyotes. And all you can find is maybe a rib cage and some bones and some hair around. Jesus is saying, I'm sending you out like a fawn in the midst of a pack of coyotes. It doesn't like, sound like he's saying, hey, everyone is gonna know that you're with me and they're gonna love you so much for it. No, a fawn in the midst of coyotes, a sheep in the midst of wolves. That's why he goes on to say that we are to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. It is going to be hard. How about verse 17? He says they're gonna deliver you over to courts, flog you in their synagogues, and be dragged before governors big wigs. You read the book of Acts, isn't that what happened? They go before Herod and Caesar Agrippa and all the rest. And by the way, just think it's some things that Christians are brought before courts and governors today. It's still going on, certainly across the world. Read on. I know we're moving fast. Are you with me? You're going to love this one, not so much. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child. And children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you're like, whoa, this is just too much for me. This doesn't jive with the family-friendly Christianity that I know about. This doesn't seem to jive with the family-friendly Jesus that I, that I worship. Hey, man, this is what Jesus himself said, right? Verse 22. You will be hated by all. Hated by all. Now, That's not a universal statement because we know there are people who will respond to the gospel and will love you for sharing the gospel. But it is saying you will be hated by all kinds of people. Why, does he say? For my name's sake. Now most people, let's let's be honest. Most people will probably not have a a too hard a time if you just kind of generically tell them about Jesus, right? Jesus and and love and and that kind of thing, right? They won't have a hard time with that. Sure, yeah. 
But when you actually start talking about the Jesus of Scripture and what he actually said, the response will be something like this. That's not my Jesus, and they'll hate you. Or they'll just cut to the chase and say, I hate Jesus. In, in both cases, that's really what's going on when you present the real Jesus. You'll be hated, hated by all for my name's sake. This is so encouraging, but he's keeping it real, right? He's telling us it's going to be what? Hard. 22b. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Which one? The one who endures to the end will be saved. You mean, I can't just pray this prayer and invite Jesus, quote, into my heart, you know, the sinner's prayer, and, and just kind of file that way in, in, in my firebox, in my upstairs closet, like an insurance policy for when I need it, or, or make sure I have the app on my phone if I get in an accident? Like, I, I, I can't just pray this prayer and then get on with it and, and forget about it? You mean to say... How I live for Jesus and how I seek to tell others about Jesus says something about the reality of my own salvation? Yes. Because Jesus just said, the one who endures to the end will be saved. We we read on. Verses 24 and 25, a disciple is not above his teacher. And then you drop down uh, to the end part of verse 25 if they have called the master of the house Beazabal, how much more will they malign those of his household? Who's the master of the house here? Who's Jesus talking about? Himself. Now check this out. They tried the ultimate cancel card with Jesus, right? He's the holiest one that's ever lived, and they tried to call him the most evil one, Beazabal. I think the application he makes is clear when he says, so they will malign you. There will be times when you are simply standing for that which is good and right and perfect according to Scripture. And you will be called evil for it. You'll be called oppressive for that or unjust for that. If they malign Jesus for standing for truth, for being the embodiment of truth, how much more, does he say, will be the case with us? And then you have verses 32 and 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Um, I don't think Jesus is saying, acknowledging him is just saying, I believe in Jesus. I think the idea is a willingness to stand with him, right? To stand with him who is the way and the truth and the, right, and, and the life. And so if we're not willing to stand where the living word and the written word stands, then there is the potential at that day you will not be acknowledged as a child of God. Those are his words, right? He's saying it can be hard. Now, this is some strong stuff, isn't it? Isn't it? But I'm telling you, the next thing we're going to see about it being hard is an absolute category buster. I want you to look at verse 34. Jesus actually said, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. 
I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. You're like, what's going on here? Because I read the Christmas passages, and the angels announce, I bring you good tidings of joy, which will be peace for all men on earth, right? Is he not called in Isaiah 9, 6, the Prince of Peace, hey? Did not Jesus say in John 14, 27, my peace I leave you, my peace I give you? And in fact, does it not say in Ephesians chapter two that Jesus Christ came that we might have peace with God and peace with one another? Yes or no? Yes. So how do you reconcile that? And here's how you reconcile it. You keep on reading in Ephesians and other things Jesus said. Yes, the gospel brings peace, but before it brings peace, it exposes that we are actually at enmity with God. We actually hate God in our hearts. So we repackage him to a God that we can like, it's just not the real God. But when you present it with the real God, boom, enmity comes out. Ephesians 2.16, in love, Jesus came to destroy that enmity by bearing the judgment we deserve. So that dynamic explains why you can be talking to somebody and they can seem like the nicest person on earth, but the conversation might steer towards the gospel and spiritual truth. And you ever seen their countenance change like Dr. Jekyll and Hyde? Huh? Like, boom, all of a sudden they're, they're not such a kind person. They're actually kind of ugly and mean. Yes. Hostility already exists in our hearts, right? And the gospel comes and exposes that, even exacerbates it, so that then we can run to the cross to find healing and forgiveness. It's almost, anybody here have a, a messy garage? A messy basement? When you want to bring order to it, sometimes you actually even have to make it messier for a moment, right? Pull all this stuff out of the boxes, put it here and here to get ready to, to organize it. That's what the gospel does. It, ex it exposes our enmity. And so that's why Jesus goes on to say, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. In other words, some people come to accept the message of peace at the blood of the cross and some don't and that creates conflict, right? That exposes the enmity. And that is why Jesus goes on to say in verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's a strong verse right there. The question I ought to ask myself, and you ought to ask yourself is, hey, Mike, really, what is the ultimate love in my life? That's a good question for us to ask, right? Because you understand, you can say the right thing theologically, and still not have Christ as your first love. And according to this verse, if Christ is not our first love, he says, you're not worthy of me. Again, that's strong. And then you have the knockout punches of verses 38 and 39. He says, and whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. It doesn't say, take up your best life now. He's talking about 
taken up a ghastly instrument of death, the cross. And I think what he's really getting at is this, that we need to renounce our own will and embrace his will for us as Christian men, as Christian women. Instead of what the world tells us about finding yourself. In every age group, people find themselves as they follow the worldly, demonic isms of the world. No, this is what the Bible says about finding yourself. Verse 39, Jesus says, whoever finds his life will lose it. So you sure you want to do that? And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Highly caffeinated, right? Strong stuff. You typically don't see these verses on Christian uh, coffee cups and calendars and t-shirts and bumper stickers and all the rest. But this is what Jesus said. Did he really say these things? He did. And he did so graciously, right? Ahead of time so that we won't be rocked and shocked by false expectations that will lead us to being dismayed and discouraged and even departing. And speaking of that, I close the first point with four, four, four things to kind of hopefully this will massage into our hearts. If you don't get this, that it will be hard. If you don't get this, you'll be prone to doing one or more of the following four bad things, all right? The first thing you might be prone to do is you just quit evangelizing. You quit. The cost is too high. It is too hard. But do you know quitting equals disobedience? And quitting seeking to evangelize others may say more about the state of our own salvation than the people we're trying to reach with the message of salvation. We might be prone to do that. Second of all, we can believe the lie that the reason we're getting some negative reactions is because we're not being loving enough. If we're just more loving, we won't get this negative reaction. And a lie has resurfaced, it's been a lie through the ages, but surfaced afresh in this latest season, that the key to winning people to Christ is making sure they never get offended. Now, to be sure, we are not to be offensive. But the truth is offensive because it exposes the enmity that's already in the fallen human heart, right? Third of all, we will then water down the truth. We won't talk about sin, maybe mistakes, more us as victims of sin and not perpetrators of sin, right? We won't talk about judgment or holiness or the truth as it relates to unpopular topics. I came across this truth uh, in one of the commentaries that in AD 75, there were 265 Roman deities set up in the intersections of the city. And that commentator made the point that um, the early church could have proclaimed Jesus in a watered-down way that a polytheistic society would have been just fine with. Hey, that sounds good. We'll put Jesus up there, 266 deities in this city. But they did not do that, did they? And this is a temptation for all of us, isn't it? It's a temptation for me at times. 
It definitely is. Last week, uh, I had the uh, chance of preaching at a, at a conference in Ohio on Wednesday, so I asked Pastor Cleet if he wanted to uh, preach uh, Sunday, which he did. My baseball team had a game, actually had a doubleheader Sunday. Usually I can't make them or I show up late. But I said, you know what? Maybe I can play in this. And I, I, I texted my coach and I asked him, because he knows I'm a Christian and he, he confesses Christ. I said, what do you think about letting the team know ahead of time that um, we're going to have a little chapel service right next to the dugout? Show up 15 minutes or a quick, quick 15 minute service. And wasn't sure he was going to do it. Maybe it was, but, but in the last minute he sent out a text to all the team. And so, there was, a, there was like five. Maybe some people kind of listened on the periphery. One Christian, the rest were not Christians. And in that moment, I was tempted with this. Like, I could just give a little cheesy sports devotional. Like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, including hitting the ball 350 feet, you know. And they told a few jokes or something like that. Because after all, I'm going to be those guys for the next several hours. But by the grace of God, I was able just to, to preach uh, the gospel to them, and, and, and it was cool. It was really cool. Um, one of the guys, even that I least expected to be there, was there and gave, I, I, I wish I could say he just fell to his knees and trusted Christ. He didn't, but he came up and gave me a hug and said, thank you for sharing that with me. So, I, but, but the temptation was there. The temptation is to water down the truth, and I had to be prepared. You know what? Some of these guys might not be that happy after I preach. And the fourth thing that we can do if we don't understand it's going to be hard is we can deconstruct which means we either reject christianity outright or we embrace a faux or paper mache form of christianity that falls under the wide umbrella of progressive christianity and i have to tell you that umbrella will not save you from the wrath of god <sighs> this does not mean you become a jerk for jesus or, you know, a person with a martyr complex for the Messiah. But candidly, candidly, I don't think that's most of our vulnerability. Do you? I think our greater danger might be cowards for Christ. Or, or maybe a better way to put it is cowards against Christ. Now, to be clear, this does not mean that we're harsh, Right? We're not harsh with the truth. After all, we saw two weeks ago from Matthew chapter 9 that Jesus spot nizomai. Remember that word? He was stirred in his guts, in his splachnos, in his intestines, with love and a burden for the lostness of people like sheep without shepherd. And in both, we have to have that, that splachnizomai, that compassion in both our contact evangelism and our everyday evangelism. And let me just do a quick detour right here while I'm at it. Contact evangelism is like what we do, what we're going to be doing this, this coming Saturday. It's what we do at Virginia Park. It's what we do on Wednesday nights, some Wednesday nights of the month. Everyday evangelism is hopefully what you're doing at school, at work, neighborhood, and all that. I want to challenge you. If you are not doing everyday evangelism to step out and do some contact evangelism. I promise you, I promise you that contact evangelism will ignite greater commitment and greater boldness in everyday evangelism. There's just this, it, it's almost like, a, here we go again, but a batting cage, okay? 
You get in a batting cage, and he gives you six pitches at like 70 miles an hour that you can just get, get your swing going, okay? It's kind of artificial. It's, it's not like the game. You know what he's going to throw you, right? But it gets your confidence up so when you go in the game, you can hit. And there's something about contact evangelism that even if you don't see any fruit there, I really believe leads to uh, faithfulness that, that brings fruitfulness in everyday life. So, splachnizomai, compassion. We have to have that in our contact evangelism. We gotta be bold, we gotta be prophetic. But again, we need to be kind and gracious even when people are harsh with us. And actually, for one of the first times out at Virginia Park, last time people were kinda harsh, uh, more than they had been. But, but that's, how, that's how we're to be. And then in everyday evangelism, it's not gonna work just to bang that person over the head with the Bible, right? Like, it just doesn't work that way. But, again, ditches to avoid. It's not going to work to say, you know, I'm just waiting for that moment when they say, the way you live is so different. How can I be, how do you Christians put it, uh, saved? Tell me, please. No, you can, not that either, right? So, it's almost like if you've been watching World Cup soccer. When the defense has the ball, what are they doing? He goes to the fullback, maybe the stopper, the sweeper, back to fullback, and they're just passing the ball, looking for that lane of opportunity, right? And they might get slide tackled five yards down the field, or they might put the goal, the ball in the back of the net. That's how it has to be with us in everyday evangelism. We're just ready, we're present, we're loving, we're listening, and we're looking for those opportunities. Point one is this. It will be, be what? Hard. Now let's run through the second point. God will help you. He will help you. We already know that, don't we? The Great Commission is meat between two great pieces of bread. Before he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel, or Matthew 28, before he says, uh, making disciples, right? Baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He says, all authority has been given to That's God's authority, God's power. What gives you Christians the right to tell others about Jesus? The fact that the guy, not the guy, the God, the king of kings, I I don't talk that way, the king of kings made that guy, right? Made that gal, right? So that you have an inherent right by the one who created every image bearer, every guy, gal, every human, this king of kings, you have that inherent right to tell other people. It's his, his authority, but then he ends the Great Commission by saying, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That's past the lifetime of those original 12 disciples, right? He's with us. Now, this text, though, lays out four specific reasons, ways God will help you. First thing we'll see in verses 19 through 20 is he says, don't worry about what you'll say when you're dragged before authorities, for it is the Spirit of the Father speaking to you. It's right there, right? In other words, in those moments, the Spirit will give you the words to say. Not like dictated Bible, oh, write that down, that's more Bible. Okay, we're not saying that. But he he will lead you in what to say. In fact, you'll be in that seemingly difficult spot in order to bear witness to his name. In other words, it wasn't by accident. Now, I know some people abuse these verses. There was somebody a long time ago that was at this church. And they believed on the basis of this, that 
you, I should prepare before I preach. After all, God will give me the words to say, you know? And that sounds so spiritual, it's absolutely carnal. It's not a promise, right? That you can just show up and wing it, okay? In fact, does not the scripture say, study to show yourself, approve a workman that needs not to be ashamed? Workman? What it is, is a promise when you don't have an opportunity to prepare or you're in a hard or difficult situation and you don't know exactly what to say. Don't sweat it. God will help you. The Spirit will guide you. You may, see, you may think, well, that sounded awkward. That was weird. And yet you can believe that's what the Lord wants you to share. Even, even, that, even that, the baseball thing, which is the farthest thing from persecution, but nonetheless, it was kind of a different one for me, right? Next to the dugout, and I, I didn't really know which way to go. So I kind of had three plans, and I had no idea. And I believe in that moment, the Lord gave me clarity on which way to go. You will never experience this ministry of the Spirit if you don't put yourself in a position where you need this ministry of the Spirit. You read through the book of Acts, the Spirit gave them the words to speak. Second of all, I want you to know, and Pastor Clee did such a great job of hitting this last week. Sometimes it's okay to move on. Sometimes, sometimes it's okay to move on. When the soil of a heart proves again and again and again to be hard, it's sometimes okay to shake the dust off your feet. It doesn't mean you stop caring for that person. It doesn't mean you even stop praying for them as they come to mind. It doesn't mean you consign them to hell because that's not in our pay grade. But the enemy would love for you to expend your limited time and resources and effort and energy trying to plant jalapenos and beef eater tomatoes in a parking lot instead of going and finding some better soil down the street. And actually what we see is persecution is what moves the gospel out to where it needs to go. That's what happens in the book of Acts. When you're persecuted or when you just reject it or it's just hard soil and they don't respond, it's okay to change your target. Just don't change your theology and your commitment to reaching lost people with the good news of Christ. Then you have third of all, a command not to fear. You find this is in verses 26, 28, and 31. 26, so have no fear of them. Verse 28, don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Verse 31, fear not, therefore you are of more value than many sparrows. In spite of it being hard, he says you don't have to fear. And what's, 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 what's really, what's kind of surprising to me do you know that the number one in frequency command in the Bible is do not fear? It's actually not repent. It's actually not believe. It's do not fear. And he gives us, we're going to just tease this one out just a little bit quickly, three help-drenched reasons why you don't have to fear. This is help for us. First of all, you don't have to fear because the truth is going to come out. There is going to be vindication by God. So what he says in verse 26. So have no fear of them for or because nothing is covered that will not be revealed. Or hidden that will not be known. 
So what I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what I hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. <sighs> Speak the truth. Because the time is coming when the truth is going to come out. You ever been in a situation where you shut your mouth because you weren't quite sure what the, the response would be? And then later on, you said, why didn't I just speak up? Why didn't I speak up? It all worked out. Well, I'm telling you, it's all going to work out. It's all going to work out. I don't know how, maybe all these other conversations will be replayed. I don't know. Hugh Latimer was a leader in the English Reformation. He was speaking, preaching before King Henry VIII. And he knew he was about to say something that the king probably wouldn't be too crazy about. And he was heard to say to himself in a barely audible voice, Latimer, or probably Latimer, Latimer, be careful about what, be careful about what you're about to say, for the king is here. And then he responded to himself, Latimer, Latimer, be careful about what you are about to say, for the king of kings is here. And when you remember that, the truth will come out. That's one reason not to fear. Another reason is this. God has already dealt with the worst thing that could ever happen to you. He says, don't fear him who can destroy your body but not your soul. Fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Who's that? Who's that he's talking about? God. The one who says this is not, this is not the well wishes of one guy patting another guy in the back going off into combat while he stays in the rear with the gear. No, the one who said this actually went to the place where this God who can destroy both body and cell, body and soul, poured out his wrath for all who would believe. And so, <laughs> the worst that can happen to you is death. I understand sometimes that can be little consolation, right? I mean, people can die in some pretty bad ways. Can't they? But, but step back, step back. Life, we just sang it, is a breath. And even the most, most torturous death is in the big picture like that. And maybe these promises would, would grip our souls a little bit more that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Huh? Or the promise in Isaiah, hey, when you're in the fire, I'll walk with you through it. Or the promise of this great resurrection body. God dealt with the worst that could happen to you already if you're in Christ. And it begins by fearing him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Here's the third reason. You don't have to fear. You, you, you well know the verses about the sparrows and the hare and all that. God cares for you and he holds your life in his hand. He really does. I know in the moment when we're below the radar of understanding everything that's happening, like, it doesn't feel like he's in control. Like, all this stuff is, no, he, he is in control. He is in control. If he, if he orchestrates what happens with a sparrow and, and watches that one cent sparrow, how much more you and I? So don't fear. And here's the final one of all that this is a help-dredged reason why um, you, you can know God, God will be with you as you witness. He's gonna re he wants to encourage you. This is kind of like the finish line stuff. 
God will reward you. That, isn't that what that last paragraph said? And there's kind of a progression. Down receives Jesus, receives a righteous person, and all the way down to giving a, a kid in the name of discipleship a cup of cold water. Jesus is going to reward each and every person who joins his cause. As a coach, I love, I just love this, the smile that lights up a kid's face when I tell him, him or her, that was a great play. Or even if it was a terrible play but a great effort, I say great effort and their face just lights up. I, I, I love that look. I promise you, your face is gonna light up like never before when the Lord of glory says to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in to the joy of the Lord. And grace on top of grace, he's gonna give us rewards. And I don't have time to unpack all what that might look like, but he's gonna give us rewards, I do know this, that are everlastingly gonna reflect his glory far more than that dusty sixth grade trophy that's in a box in the basement or that corporate plaque that's in your bottom drawer and you haven't thought about it in seven years. Many people have shipwrecked their faith on the rock of wrong expectations or at least stepped back from the kind of commitment they used to have. And Jesus is trying to take away the shock value ahead of time so that when it comes, you'll stand firm because he equipped you with two unfailing mission expectations. Number one, it will be hard. And number two, he will help you. Amen. Father, I ask that you would use these words to encourage the hearts of your people. I pray that where there would need to be conviction for perhaps uh, quitting evangelizing, never starting, perhaps, or playing fast and loose with the truth, watering it down, or uh, buying the lie that uh, if there's ever a negative reaction, we just must not be loving enough, or even moving it in the direction of bona fide deconstruction. Lord, I pray that your spirit would drop a hammer in that person's heart. Um, not to condemn, but to remind them of the one who took our condemnation and cause them to turn back to him. Not just turn back to him, but turn harder into him than they ever have before. And I pray, Father, that you would encourage us with your help. Think of the uh, outreach coming up this coming weekend, but I just think of the contact evangelism here and the everyday evangelism we do that one of these four or other reasons, ways that you help us would just land afresh so that when we go to the ball field again or the marketplace or uh, the neighborhood or work or some hot Lord, we would just, we're like, okay, I'm, I'm here. I'm here for a reason. Let me, let me be like that soccer defense uh, 
present, listening, loving, and, and just willing to take that opportunity. Whether you, we get slide tackled at five yards and have to reset or whether um, the ball get, ends up in the back of the net. Lord, help us to be faithful, faithful, Lord. So, Lord, would, you, would, your, would your spirit cause us not just to let this uh, drain off our back like water off the back of a duck, but, Lord, this would land where it needs to um, for, for us to be all that you want to be as your church and for your glory. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.